Welcome everyone to The Lift. This is Tyra Sellers. And I'm Linda LeBlanc. And in episode 15, we're going to get some perspectives about supervision and mentorship from some professors. We're going to hear from two fantastic special guests that we have today. We have Dr. Adam Briggs and Dr. Jason Vladescu. So I'm going to introduce Dr. Adam Briggs first. Adam um, is an assistant professor in the psychology department at Eastern Michigan University. He received his bachelor's from Western, master's in applied behavior analysis and developmental disabilities, yay, at Auburn University, and ultimately his PhD in behavioral psychology from the Department of Applied Behavioral Science at the University of Kansas. Okay, I have to keep going. There's more. He completed a two-year postdoc research fellowship from the University of Nebraska Medical Center and Monroe Meyer Institute's Center for Autism Spectrum Disorders. He received the Bear Wolf and Risley Outstanding Graduate Student Award for Excellence in Teaching, Research, and Service, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, Dr. Briggs is a board-certified behavior analyst and a licensed behavior analyst in the state of Michigan. He is serving as the 2020-2021 program chair for Mid-American Association of Behavior Analysis, and as ad hoc reviewer for several journals. In addition, uh, he is currently on the editorial boards for not just one, <laughs> but the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and Behavior Analysis in Practice, and has also served as a guest editor for Education and Treatment of Children. That was a mouthful welcome, Adam. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, sorry for that lengthy bio. I'll have to work on trimming that down a little bit. Uh, but I do want to say thank you so much for the invitation to join you all in this discussion. And thank you to both of you and your co-author, Shala, for creating such an awesome resource, not only for instructors like Jason and I, but for supervisees and supervisors alike. And I'm confident that the content of this book will prove, prove to be a valuable resource for those training to become like the next generation of supervisors and mentors in our field, which we know is so important. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you for being here and do not trim it down. And I suspect because you're pretty awesome, it's only going to get longer and that's totally fine. You earned all of that. So no trimming. Um, next is Dr. Jason Vladescu, who is a professor in the Department of Applied Behavior Analysis at Caldwell University and a clinical supervisor in the Center for Autism and Applied Behavior Analysis. He completed his pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral fellowship at University of Nebraska Medical Center's Monroe Meyer Institute. He's a board certified behavior analyst and a licensed behavior analyst in New York. He has published a bunch, 60 plus peer review articles and several book chapters. Jason just finished his term as, a, as an associate editor for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and is on the editorial board for a whole bunch of other behavior analytic journals. Also, he is the recipient of the APA Division 25 BF Skinner New Applied Researcher Award. Also a big deal. So welcome, Jason. Wow. Well, uh, thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction, but, uh, you know, really honored to be invited and uh, such a treat to be joining uh, you fabulous folks here and uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Yay, me too. And I know Linda is excited as well. Right, Linda? Yes, two of my favorite people. Well, <laughs> three of my favorite people, Tyra, your favorite too. Um, and love the opportunity to talk about how we use this kind of resource in doing something like teaching the next generation of grad students that are going to become BCBAs and maybe even professors. So that's really exciting. And we thank you for being here and thank you for using the book in your courses. Well, we typically start um, with a quote because each chapter in the book has a quote. And this episode isn't based on a chapter, um, but as we were recording the podcast, we just sort of realized, you know, we're talking about each chapter, but it might be cool for listeners to hear from people that are actually using the content. So we found this quote by Alice Wellington Rollins, and it says, the test of a good teacher is not how many questions he can ask his pupils that they will answer readily, but how many questions he inspires them to ask, which he finds it hard to answer. And I think that really embodies 
a main theme in the book, which is self-reflection. You're not going to know it all. The idea isn't to look smart in front of your trainees or supervisees. In fact, it's to um, continue to be open to showing that you don't know everything because the critical thing that you're passing on to your folks is how they can come to learn things when they don't know things. So um, I think it would be awesome if we get started hearing a little from you, Adam and Jason, about sort of your supervision story. In other words, how did you get, you know, hooked into providing supervision? Maybe you were told to do it. Maybe you wanted to do it. Um, and what sort of are your values around providing high quality supervision? Yeah, so I, I have to start by saying I've just been so fortunate to benefit from just a variety of really high quality supervision and mentorship experiences, uh, privileged pretty much, um, that have served as just these exemplary models throughout my career thus far. And most notably, um, I, as you mentioned earlier, like I attended the University of, or Auburn University's uh, master's program, and they had a unique setup where it was, a, at that time, it was a one-year master's program, but the, the purpose of it was to be this really intensive training, uh, intensive supervision model, um, and also part of that, of being a student with that, within that model, there was a um, opportunity to get a fellowship um, and the fellowship would pay for your tuition, give you a stipend in exchange for um, being hired on the next year as a kind of a newly minted BCBA. They're kind of reserving uh, you these uh, organizations that would um, fund that role. And the one that I was lucky enough to kind of get selected for was actually coming back to work for Auburn University as a practicum coordinator and supervisor. So not only did I experience this really intensive training supervision experience as a student, but then the year after I was kind of put back in, but on the other side of the model um, <laughs> and uh, was put in, put into a, for the next, my first two years uh, as a BCBA, this really intensive supervision model. And within that model benefited from having uh, doctors, Linda LeBlanc and Dr. Jim Carter kind of function as my mentor, advisor, uh, as I was learning the ropes of being a, an effective supervisor. And so that was just, again, an incredible experience um, and one that's just uh, lasted with me and kind of my, helped it really inform my values uh, of, of how, I, how I function as a supervisor and how I arrange those conditions. Um, and yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I know we'll get into a little bit later, but um, <clears throat> when I was uh, 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 teaching this course or putting this course together, back in, uh, I guess it must've been the winter of uh, 2020, um, I've created the syllabus and uh, the readings. Um, and again, it's an area that I'm very passionate about, but then I found out your book had come out and I completely scrapped, you know, and, and what, I, what I came up with and nice. incorporated it because as I was reading it, I was like, this aligns perfectly with my values. And I wonder why it's because it's written by folks that had trained me how to be a supervisor. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it was uh, really, really, um, awesome experience that, you know, we'll get into a little bit more about kind of how it's really influenced my practices. Thank you. Know, you. Um, Adam, obviously I was there when that happened <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we felt lucky too, to have you um, take that position and continue supervising the students. But, you know, and I think everyone experiences this, but it's that rapid shift between last week, I was being supervised this week, I am supervising others. And I think it really was almost that rapid for you. And, you know, uh, in the part one of that is, you remember it, you ought to have empathy for how intense and a, a little nervous you are. But to not only be a supervisor, but also as a supervisee, so that you can kind of be kind about that and, you know, kind of recognizing I just made those same kinds of mistakes. But I do think when people have that rapid shift and they don't have more senior people around to talk to about that and to talk to about, you got this, you're going to know this, um, your confidence. I think can get undermined when you make that rapid shift. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I, I really, um, I don't know where I would be because I was going to get shifted into a position to be a supervisor, no matter where I went. 
And so I don't know where I would be if I hadn't had those experiences. And so that's why, um, you know, I can take those, those experiences that I've had and impart that on my students and say, look, it's, this is, you know, like remember now how you feel and because you will be in that position or you will be supervising folks in that position. Um, and it was also why I, I value what uh, the, the BACB actually is doing with not requiring that if folks functioning as supervisors now actually coordinate and, and kind of uh, adopt a mentor in that in those early years. Because yeah. I think that's such a valuable and kind of critical period to um, um, gain skills and have a sounding board almost to go to to you know work through some issues that maybe you hadn't experienced uh, as you were a supervisee. So yeah, it's again, you know, we place such an emphasis on, um, you know, like coursework's important, uh, practical experience or field work is important, but really those supervision uh, experiences and the relationships you build are so critical in the moment, but then throughout the rest of your career. And so putting things in place to ensure that they're high quality and that you are feeling um, supported throughout is, is so important. Well said. Um, well, how about you, Jason? Let's hear about your origin story when it comes to supervision. Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll first start by uh, not answering your question and saying that, you know, what I what I really like about podcasts like this is, um, you know, just listening to Adam's story about uh, how he got involved in supervision and his experiences. Um, you know, I find that really kind of interesting, um, just on a personal note. And also, Adam's quite the wordsmith, so um, uh, it's he's a tough act to follow as well. Um, but you know, you know, some of his shared experiences, um, you know, or similar experiences that you know, I've really had some uh, great supervisors uh, in grad school and during pre-doc and post-doc. Um, I also had some not so great supervision experiences, but I, I won't focus as much on those at the moment. But certainly, I think it is important to remember. Um, and think about those not so great supervision experiences um, because I think they can um, have a particular influence as well. And, and they, um, you know, always important to keep in mind as a supervisor. Um, but, you know, in grad school, I had a, a great mentor. Um, her name was Sharon Bradley Johnson. And, uh, you know, tremendous in terms of, uh, of being a supervisor. And then uh, another supervisor I'll mention during my time at Monroe Meyer is uh, Tiffany Kodak. And I like to think of those both as having, um, I, th I think of them both as talent multipliers in the sense mm -hmm. of, you know, the impact that they had, not on me, but every trainee that kind of went through and experienced their supervision. Um, and, you know, they just made everyone around them better and smarter and made all the services around them better. Um, and, I, you know, that's kind of been such a strong source of control on my behavior that, I really just try to um, do the same for the individuals that I supervise. Um, and, you know, when I uh, took, when I kind of, you know, that transition from supervisee to supervisor started to happen while I was a pre-doc and then as a post-doc, you know, you're kind of like thrown right into the fire um, because, <laughs> you know, that was over 10 years ago. And, you know, over 10 years ago, there was a substantially less behavior analyst than there are now today. Um, and so, uh, if you were a behavior analyst uh, 10 or more years ago, you had no choice but to be a supervisor, I think. Um, uh, so, and then, you know, I get thrown in again to the fire as a professor. And, um, you know, I really, uh, it's been, uh, you know, kind of scraping together resources. So I really appreciated uh, this book, I think, was tremendous, kind of that it's written for behavior analysts. Um, and all packaged together um, very nicely. Um, so, uh, you know, as soon as that came out, I uh, had already had designed a class much similar to Adam and I had taught the class at least one or two semesters. And then the book came out and I was like, I've got to, I will find a way to integrate this into my <laughs> class. Um, and that's what I've done. And um, I know we'll get into it a little bit, but uh, it's had, uh, you know, I think students are finding it tremendously valuable, but uh, me as a professional, I've also found um, it tremendously valuable um, on numerous levels, not just as a supervisor, but just as a, uh, you know, particularly the later chapters of um, uh, myself and my career as a professional. Yeah, great stuff. Wonderful. Jason, real quick, you, Grace, real quick, you mentioned 
the, I'm a wordsmith and I appreciate that compliment, but um, early in my career, I was not, I'm sure Dr. LeBlanc can attest to, attest to that. And it was through her and other, my met, other mentors supervision and shaping, you know, I've gained those skills again, kind of just uh, hearkening back to the value of high quality supervision and training. Oh, Linda, look at you making the world a better place. <laughs> and um, these guys making the world a better place for sure. That's and- for sure. I just want to, I just want to highlight one thing that you said, Jason, the idea sort of, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that there is value in, um, being a multiplier, not being a diminisher or being someone who simply makes a carbon copy of yourself. Instead, you want to make sort of a better version, the best version of that person. And I think that's something that we have tried to clearly message in the book. This isn't about a recipe and you do it this way and you make little baby carbon copies of yourself, which means it's more effortful. But um, I I really love that you made that point. Yeah. And I, if I was just going to just interject here really quickly that I think that's a lesson that took me a little bit more time to learn. Um, and that <laughs> I think earlier in my career, I, you know, whether intentionally or not, I think it was, I was trying to make carbon copies of myself and that I finally had the real realization. I'm like, first of all, the world doesn't need any more of you, Jason. Um, <laughs> um, I think one is enough. And also, um, that's probably not going to be a multiplier, right? In that sense that, you know, uh, that, you know, just try to promote the best in and that, you know, being someone different than me and better than me would probably be a better goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or, and, you, and Tyler, you mentioned it's effortful, but it's more personal and requires you to build a relationship with your supervisor. It requires you to recognize where their strengths are, where their interests are, where their passions are, and be able to um, kind of create the conditions under which for those to flourish. And, and um, I think much like Jason too, I was thinking I got to create these carbon copies, but you, <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense after, after you see it a little bit and you meet that resistance and then you start to recognize like, oh, I'm here to help them grow in, in, in their own way. And yep. I think part of that can come from the fact that particularly when you're junior in your career, if you're lucky, you've seen one or two versions that you think are good and you're trying to emulate those. And so you want them to emulate those and you haven't yet had enough exemplars to see all of the different ways that can be good and can be right. And like what the core parts of the good and right are that you can try to foster among this, these variations of different people. And then get to shape your behavior, right? Because you are learning so much from each of your trainees, students, and supervisees. Well, I wonder then that kind of leads into what you all think um, are sort of the top one or two. We'll give you three if you can't just stick to one or two. Jason, already you don't like to follow the rules. Um, <laughs> well, well that's a, that's, that's the quickest tact I've, I think I've ever seen regarding my behavior. <laughs> what do you all think are, you know, kind of the most core critical, important, um, skills for folks to develop and, you know, learn to continue to facilitate for themselves so that they're successful, uh, when they, you know, are no longer a trainee. You know, I think one, I'll just mention one that um, I, I, first of all, I really say I really appreciated there was a whole, I, I can't remember if it's a whole chapter or a section of a chapter devoted to it, but I think the independent problem solving, um, I think is so tremendous. And I think, you know, considering that, you know, as I alluded to before that, I mean, we have so many behavior analysts who are recent grads operating um, in jobs that they may not have a behavior analytic community uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, they are often on their own in terms of being able to problem solve. Um, and oftentimes, right. It's like, you've been in school and you've had mentors and professors and supervisors available, um, as a kind of source of influence or control on what you're doing. And, you know, all of a sudden you're thrust into jobs where, you know, those kinds of support systems are often not there. And, you know, being able to then problem solve 
um, I think independently um, is, I think, so critical, um, particularly if you can apply that right in a, you know, and it can occur across numerous environments, um, I think will pay tremendous dividends. Fantastic. Yeah. How about you, Adam? Yeah, my, 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 the ones that I came up with align actually really well with what uh, Jason just said. And that is like your professional repertoire is more than just learning all you can in grad school or memorizing the content within, you know, Cooper, Heron, Hewer, but rather it's that practicing as an independent behavior analyst is a way of thinking or problem solving uh, of approaching each case from this like unique perspective based on your understanding of the, of that most behavior is a product of its environment. So like that way of thinking is general. And so it kind of generalizes across what, no matter what uh, uh, situation arises or case, you know, problem that, that you have to uh, address. And further than that, your knowledge gained in grad school is cutting edge best practice at that time. And perhaps for a year or two, you know, you are kind of uh, in the know, but that science and field continue to advance. And so the next critical repertoire, I think, is that's required is to also be in a mindset that you're a forever student um, and that you're constantly open to uh, learning new techniques and strategies for assessing, teaching, training, um, and that this requires skills like continuing to stay in contact with the literature and consuming the material and then being able to translate that material into practice. Um, I think those are the critical repertoires. Those are the ones that kind of generalize across. I love that. And, you know, one more I'll mention, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a specific skill per se, but yeah, kind of a repertoire of professionalism, um, I think is so critical as well. And, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of my experiences and, you know, what I did um, at, or what I do as a professor, right, is so much on, you know, knowledge and skills related to behavior analytic content, right, and less focus on developing, you know, professional types of behaviors or soft skills, maybe some folks have called them. Um, and, you know, what, I've, what I see so much is that, you know, our graduates, you know, students from our program go on to work in a diverse number of environments. And the diversity of those environments is kind of expanding, right? And, you know, they're going into environments where mostly they're operating with uh, other professionals who have very well-defined roles. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, behavior analysts are kind of the new kid on the block. Um, and so, you know, being able to uh, be savvy in those types of environments, um, I think is tremendously important. Um, yeah, sort of gets it like interpersonal communication and, you know, a good audience control when you're speaking, right? Yeah. Yes. One of the other skills in the chapter of the book on inter interpersonal skills, communication, perspective taking is flexibility and compromise. And, um, <laughs> Is that I think, directed at me, Linda? No, uh -huh. It's directed <laughs> all at all of us. <laughs> all of us. <laughs> at one point or another. And, you know, that's one that I think it helps in so many different contexts, whether it's uh, interdisciplinary teaming, therapeutic relationships with families, getting along with your peers in the workplace when you've come from different uh, backgrounds and programs and have different skill sets. But also, I think when you're in that role of a teacher, flexibility in particular, you know, we have our preferred way to say something Our, you know, like it's the way we think about it. It's, you know, words, you know, putting our, our thought out into the world, and then somebody doesn't understand it. <laughs> and you can either be frustrated by that or you can say, okay, what part is it that I need to change a little bit and be flexible about to find those, those synonyms or that different analogy, a different story that I can tell that will help this person understand. And um, I think part of that, that skill pays dividends when you can recognize, okay, this is the way I think about it. This is the way I like to talk about it, but maybe other people talk about it this way. Reasonable people can vary in how they talk about the value of the distinction between positive and negative reinforcement <laughs> or what have you. And that you can talk about that without having to agree or disagree with it. And I think for me, 
being a professor and teaching and giving lectures for so long, it helped me to kind of recognize, well, here are a couple of different sources and all these smart people talk about it differently. So it's clearly okay that people can differ on this and that I might know which of those resonates with me best, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the right one. And I think when you're, when you're new in your career, it can be harder to have the right flexibility and compromise yeah. and to feel comfortable with it. Like if I am flexible and compromise on this, am I going to do the wrong thing? So I better not, right? Because I kind of get all these functions of behavior, but like, what if I, you know, it's, it's still new, it's still emerging. And like, what if this compromise is going to actually worsen something? And I think it tends to sometimes make us a little rigid in our career or else we compromise on stuff that we maybe shouldn't. Mm-hmm. What have the two of you seen in, in your years of supervising others? And what? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because this is one of the things that my students and I spend a lot of time talking about, but in the context of building relationships and partnerships with others, whether you're going into a, a new clinic to um, uh, consult or you're being brought onto like an IEP team, but working with others from a kind of an interdisciplinary aspect and how important that is to, you're not coming in there trying to say, here's you know what we're doing and, and it's kind of my way or the highway, but you're in there, you're trying to build relationships, you're trying to, um, um, and, and how critical that is to be able to then uh, educate or, or pass on kind of your knowledge and how you think of things. And again, yeah, being flexible, um, but also kind of being able to kind of uh, manage those relationships and, and, and compromise in such a way uh, that maintains the relationship and builds relationships so that you can have an impact and can have an influence on those cases. Yeah, and I'll just add, uh, um, <laughs> you were speaking, Linda, and I connected so well with it uh, when I first kind of transitioned into being a professor, right, that I had come from kind of a specific background, and then I was thrown into an environment where um, I'm working with other um, professors who are behavior analysts, and I was like, holy moly, I was like, uh, what the heck are they talking about and what the heck are they doing? Um, this is not the way that I learn things, right? And um, so, you know, I had to learn those. Uh, I had to really kind of adapt, become more. I think that was a very helpful experience, um, you know, to feel for myself, right? What it was like um, to be in that kind of position and kind of develop and push myself to become more flexible and, um you know, problem solve how to com- uh, compromise um, uh, with folks that, you know, uh, I have a great deal of respect for. Um, and, you know, trying to then impart those um, similar types of perspectives on um, my supervisees and trainees. Um, and, you know, with this idea being that I-, I think sometimes it's, you know, it's oftentimes it's like they want one path or one way to go, but, you know, mm-hmm. trying to emphasize the value and variability as well um, that you know variability allows us a lot of different things to select from um, Reach. Uh, yes yes <laughs> um, and so you know and so that's I think uh, very powerful you know it's really interesting to listen to all three of you talk about this because my trajectory to become a professor was quite different than I think a lot of folks but certainly a lot of folks sort of my age um, I didn't go, you know, straight through bachelor's, master's, PhD program. I didn't do a pre-doc or a post-doc. I didn't learn the way, right? I didn't, I didn't sort of get indoctrinated. Um, and instead, I had a very applied clinical experience. And so when I got into academia, uh, like I was, I'm, I was never the kind of person that was in a camp. I was always sort of wandering among all of the camps. And I didn't even realize there were camps until I was challenged from time to time, like, well, no, so-and-so says this, or this article calls it that, or, you know, Dr. Whomever in this presentation said you have to do it this way. Um, And I was sort of a little bit shook because that didn't feel very behavior analytic to me because that's not very functional, right? right? I mean, obviously there's a baseline level of 
of right and wrong in terms of, you know, adhering to basic scientific principles. But so I had kind of the opposite and I had to sort of learn how to navigate that intact when people maybe were being inflexible, not because they thought they were the smartest, but because that's what they learned. Um, and, and how could I talk to them about, you know, maybe there are also some other ways. So it's just interesting to sort of hear that take on it because my experience was the opposite. Boy, one of the things I've said several times, um, really since I started publishing a good bit and there are, there are people who like, there's a model of how you do it and it's named after them or like some kind of packaged intervention or treatment or approach. And even if it's just slang, people call it by that person's last name. And I can remember saying, I hope nobody is out there saying the LeBlanc way, because I'm not even sure what that is. <laughs> Other than like, uh, get busy solving some problems and figure it out and collect some data. And, um, but I do think that when you're new, you haven't yet seen as many exemplars that would allow you to derive what are the core things that make this a way yeah well let i think brings us to the fact that there are lots of different ways that you could use this book in graduate training or um or your experiential uh, courses practicum so we wrote the book so that it potentially could be used in lots of ways for more junior um, brand new BCBAs, as well as for more senior people, it's just that different sections of the book are probably going to resonate and feel most useful at different parts in your career. And we tried to write it so that a person could come back, come back three years later, read this thing again, and you might get something slightly different from those reflection exercises. So, would you each be willing to talk a little bit about the context in which you use the book, which course, you know, how it's fit into that? And then I'll uh, chime in with a course that I've been creating, but I'll, I'll go last. So who'd like to tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah, I'll go. So um, um, as I mentioned, kind of scrap things and, and with this was the first text that I felt like really did a nice job of just laying things out. And, um, and I felt like what better way to kind of just start off the course that with, with this book. And so we take about eight weeks to work through uh, the book in its entirety. And we supplement it with some other readings here and there. Um, and then the way that the students interact with the book is after they read, you know, what are the assigned reading is for that week, chapter two, um, um, they then uh, submit a reaction to that. And then also like a discussion question or two. Um, and then, uh, so then that allows me to see are they, you know, understand consuming the content, understanding the content. I can help shape, you know, verbal behavior on the back end. Um, but also, it lets me it lets me know like they're reading it. They're adults; they can understand it. But then, send me a discussion question about something that is a gray area or something that um, you think is maybe not addressed that we can all kind of uh, discuss. And then we sent, I essentially use all those discussion questions. Uh, I combine them and then organize them to help guide the discussion in class. And that's essentially what the class is around. Um, and then um, I, so I used a lot of the activities actually that you all programmed in at the end of each chapter to start the class off with either small group activities, um, um, kind of to kind of get the, get the rails greased a little bit in terms of, you know, get some conversation, some discussion going, have them start in small groups before they come to the large uh, group. Um, and usually it was those reflection activities I found so helpful. And I, I, I love that theme throughout. And I think it's a theme that it's not just a theme that we should embrace throughout, throughout the book, but a theme that we should embrace throughout our career. And so I like that it, it helps the students start to think that way. Um, um, again, of how to recognize what experiences that they've had previously that were, uh, that, that were effective and they want to keep uh, replicating. And then those, those experiences that 
were not effective or were potentially aversive and uh, how to, uh, you know, uh, learn from that, but then how to break that cycle and how to, you know, put, uh, do something new and different or uh, productive or effective. I think uh, I was listening to the, some of the, a call back to the, some of the previous lift episodes. I think Tyra used the zombies and unicorn analogy in terms of identifying mm -hmm. thing, practices that don't work and we don't want to, we want to kind of put an end to. And what are the, what are those, who, what's that shiny beacon or who, what do we want to continue to do and kind of continue to pass along? And I think it kind of fits with that. Um, and then, yeah, after we kind of come back and do those um, um, uh, uh, group activities, then we are, then we kind of segue right into working through the, the discussion questions. Um, but yeah, I quite literally use the book from start to finish. There's really, and uh, I actually brought data uh, to the, to the, to the pike, to the episode. Um, so I, it's kind of recruited student feedback on their experiences and, uh, the, you know, specific questions about um, outcome data and, and whether they felt, you know, feel more prepared before or after and those sorts of things. So using a Likert scale from one to five, um, and then specifically about like feedback on activities and um, whether they'll return to the book for guidance and- Adam, I, you just make my heart sing. <laughs> you brought data. <laughs> I um, love it. All right, hit us with some data. Well, so uh, on a, again, I've got, I've got about 14 students in the class and about a third responded. So I think that's typical, typical with, uh, you know, uh, survey research, I guess. Um, but uh, so on a five point Likert scale, um, asking them whether they felt more prepared uh, to, uh, to make the most of their supervision experiences. So kind of from the supervisee perspective, uh, on a scale from one to five, they reported 4.4 after reading the book. Um, after feeling more prepared to be an effective supervisor, um, they, uh, they, the average score was 4.2. Um, so, uh, there, and we can come back to that because a little, that's one of our lower scores and I, I, I have, I have some suspicions as to why. <laughs> um, and then I will likely, likely return to this book for guidance 4.2. Um, I would likely recommend this book 4.8. So really high. And then this one I, th I thought was interesting. There's more variance here, but I found the within text and a chapter reflection exercises to be helpful, 3.6. And there's like, uh, the lowest was a two, but even we had some folks uh, uh, saying fours and fives. Um, and then looking at their kind of anecdotal feedback, um, it seemed, and I think the low scores with respect to feel prepared to be an effective supervisor um, are related to the activities because I think they wanted more hands-on practices or things that they could take and, and, put into practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of the exercises get at that. And, uh, and I've, I have more kind of anecdotal feedback that I can share with you all afterwards. Um, but I think that they were looking for more hands-on things or more things that they could literally just kind of plug and chug into their, uh, into their practices. Um, but overall, really high scores, like the, the students loved the textbook so much. And I think what they really appreciated about it was just kind of the, the, the themes that run throughout of just honesty and transparency uh, and compassion. Um, and I think there's a specific comment that, you know, this isn't, this isn't how courses or how content is typically taught for the most part in their coursework. And so appro approaching supervision and mentoring uh, from this perspective, uh, they found really encouraging and, and really helpful. And as, as you know, the data showed too, they're, they're willing, they're highly likely to recommend this textbook uh, for the folks, you know, pursuing supervision um, or, Training to become a supervisor. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you to your students for slogging through the material and giving feedback. And I just, I want to speak quickly to the sort of desire for more, you know, uh, grab and go kind of um, tools or pieces. We specifically didn't write the book that way. It's not meant to be a curriculum for you to run with your trainees. It's meant to be something you have to kind of wrestle with and that you would identify certain things that you're good at and other things that maybe you need to work on a little bit more. Um, so I appreciate that feedback and, you know, maybe what that uh, should result in is a, a disclaimer in the book. What this is not is a set of things that you can turn around tomorrow and just do with your trainees. That's not the purpose of this. There are curricula out there. There are books that, that meet that kind of need. This is sort of more higher order. What are the things that are getting missed? Um, and so I kind of love that they picked up on that and that, that that's what they want. It, 
That's probably not what they need though. <laughs> um, but not that there isn't value in that, but you know, right. Like, do you want to be, do, do you want to have at your t- fingertips when you're a clinician, a whole bunch of pre-written acquisition programs for clients, or do you want to know how to create those things? Um, and that's sort of what we were trying to give. So I kind of love that, that that's where they landed. Yeah. And I, 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 I align with the way that you all uh, designed the book and intended for its use. And I actually look at this feedback more as kind of a, maybe a fault where I failed to even translate that to them. And, and that, that this isn't stuff to take and run with necessarily, but it's the process. And, and so that, that was good feedback for me to make sure that I'm, again, providing that disclaimer, whether you choose, you all choose to do it in your textbook or not, it's a good reminder for me to make sure that they know how to take these things and use them or how to uh, develop them on their own. Mm. Agreed. And, you know, I think that's just, that's the nature of being new to it. And you just want some things to be easy, please. (laughs) And, um, and I don't think that this, uh, hopefully it's an easy read, but it's not an easy book in terms of here's the exact way you should do it. Uh, Particularly in the culture chapter, you know, it's really about here are ways to think about it. Here are things to look for, but you got to explore, your own thoughts and biases. And there's no like handy dandy checklist that you can get your number. And then you like do these five things and your number will get better. You know, so what you're saying um, is that, so what you're saying is that this isn't the LeBlanc sellers in a lie way. No, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, how about you, Jason? What are you, how are you using it? And, and what's, what kind of course is it? Um, uh, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I, I'll comment again. Hard to follow Adam. He brought data. Uh, <laughs> I brought. Uh, how about I brought some qualitative information from. Yes, students, but, there's value. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, uh, you know, so as Adam alluded to earlier, you know, the BACB's um, requirement now moving towards, uh, you know, human or uh, staff management and supervision uh, requirements in the task list. You know, in response to that, you know, we developed a uh, OBM course in our uh, program, and uh, I was tasked tasked with uh, uh, developing the first iteration of that course. Um, and really, you know, it focuses heavily on training and management of human service staff. Uh, that's kind of the perspective I'm able to bring to that course. So, you know, once this book, as I alluded to earlier, came out, it was a natural kind of fit for that class. Um, so. Um, that's the book that I've, inc- or that's the class I've incorporated the book into. And um, I'm not sure, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear from Adam, uh, the specific types of students that are in his class. Um, so in the class I teach, I got a pretty good range of students um, that are taking the class. So it's now a required course in our master's program. So I have some folks in that class some students in that class who are really just beginning their behavior analytic journey. Um, you know, they're really uh, either new to the field or um, have, you know, relatively little experience um, in the field um, in terms of even content, even, even as a clinician in any sense. Um, but I also have, um, you know, we have a, a PhD program and I have several PhD students in the program. We're taking this as an elective. Mm. And, um, and some of those students have been behavior analysts for a very long time. Um, so, you know, what's nice about that, right, is I get a whole bunch of different experiences and perspectives. Um, and, um, much like Adam, uh, uh, you know, we go through the whole book, um, in five different weeks of the class. Um, and I've tried to kind of connect the content of the book with, uh, related content in the class, you know, so for example, you know, uh, we read the chapter on culture, um, within the, uh, to uh, complement other OBM specific types of reading relevant to cultural responsiveness. Um, you know, we read the chapter on uh, uh, competency-based approaches to supervision when we're talking about competency-based approaches to training, right? So I've, you know, I've tried to find very natural fits um, and they do some, some portion of the um, activities that they all have structured into the book and um, I really appreciate it too. I think recently um, you released PDF fillable versions of those activities, which is uh, wonderful because, you know, they were doing things like 
you know, just like typing their answers. And I was like, yes, yes, no, 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 yes, yes. And I was like, I have no idea what this is in relation to. So, um, so I, I really did appreciate that on the side note. Um, and, you know, I think overall, so what I did was I, you know, I sh- maybe could have surveyed them, but I just started, it was a good prompt, uh, you know, being invited to this to really solicit some feedback from the students about, um, you know, what they're liking about the book. And um, I, overall, really, really like the book. I, I, you know, I think the general consensus was that the prose and tone are great. Um, that, you know, uh, that personal kind of tone of how um, the book is written, it was really appreciated by students, how the topics are framed and how conversations are framed in the book um, uh, was really, really um, kind of connect. Students were able to connect with that. Um, and, you know, I think th- their general comment, you know, is like, this is a really important topic that this book tried to make, not that it's not going to, not, not that it's going to be less effortful, right. But at least it was made into a more approachable topic. Mm. Um, and that was appreciated. So uh, I think the, where I found interesting too, was um, I think different students differed based on kind of what they connected more with. Right. So, you know, for example, the students who are kind of, you know, are pretty new to the field um, and, you know, like the mentorship tree activity. Um, I, I don't think, you know, they didn't really seem to kind of connect with that as much as kind of students who have been around a while. Um, and, um, you know, and um, yeah, so that, you know, and that, that was just one example. But I think, you know, where you and I think, Linda, you alluded to this earlier. Right. So. Different people, you know, when you're at different parts of your career, you're going to probably connect more with some of this content in different ways. And um, I think I've gotten that message from my students and also from me, um, you know, that incorporating this into a class, right, really allowed me to consume the book, but and I connected in different ways um, with that material. Um, so, you know, that's how I'm, uh, I've been using the book and um, it's, uh, it's great. Um, and, you know, one thing that I really appreciated that is built into there is, this discussion of communities of practice. Um, that for me, um, I, I find like that message so important. Um, I have yet to find a way though, I don't know if students fully get it yet, right? Particularly the ones that are new, right? Because they've never known anything but that, right? They've never operated out in an islands where like there is no other behavior analysts um, <laughs> that you can even talk to, consult with, right? So you have to kind of think about that, right? When you're taking you know, when you're moving on from grad school and, you know, if you're not moving into a position where there is a behavior analytic community of practice, right. How are you going to develop one? Um, um, yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a message that I really, um, you know, I've been thinking about for a long time uh, as a professor and I'm glad that was in the book and I'm still trying to find ways to communicate the importance of that um, to trainees and students. You know, Jason, um, one of the things I tried to do at Java with all of the AEs was to kind of bring that idea or of we are each other's community of practice. It's just that it's editorial decisions that we're dealing with and editorial work, and we can reach out to each other and we can say, you know, I'm really on the fence about this and here's what I'm thinking and, and that that's okay to do and that that's what you should do and that the job's going to feel easier and more enjoyable if you do take advantage of that, you know, community of practice. So the, but you're right, when you are, you know, in grad school, like you almost, you're just surrounded by it. You're immersed in it. Well, so um, here's what I've been doing with the book. And thank you for sharing. And and please um, share any specific feedback that you have. I'd love to even see those discussion questions because that could help us in a version two. Um, even though we're not going to make anything plug and chug. Um, So I actually have been building a series of six one credit courses for the Florida Tech online new master's program. There's always been a course sequence, but in uh, launching a full master's program, one of the core additions is this six, this series of six one unit courses. And 
Um, the courses are experiential. So this is basically intended to be kind of like the practicum class that we taught at Auburn, where you're going out there, you're in your practicum, you have your individual supervisor, but once a week you're in class with, um, with a professor who's kind of giving you the scoop and teaching you those really practical applied skills, working on the competencies, working on, you know, like actually try this and actually do that. So what I've done is kind of built the series of courses based on what the book is saying a supervisor should do and focus on and teach. And so they sometimes read a few chapters while I'm teaching that. So for example, the first, um, the first course is on making the most of supervision. And so they learn about why agendas are important and they learn about why, you know, what their supervisor's role and intention is and what their role and intention is and how to ask important and meaningful questions that they've thought through before they get to supervision and how organization and time management and basically how to, you know, be careful in everything you do so you get the most out of your learning opportunity. And I actually don't know that they read any of the chapters in the book in there, but that's clearly something that shows up in chapters one, two, and eight. The second course actually is on using a structured problem solving and decision making approach and applying that to how you look at graphs, how you choose interventions, how you choose what you measure, how you choose which targets you're going to um, take right now. And so, of course, they read the problem solving chapter, but they read that one chapter and they read a bunch of other things, but the idea gets blended through. The third one is on relationships. They read chapter eight, but it's a whole course on the kinds of things that you need to be exploring with that. Chapter or the fourth course is on uh, creating effective programs. And so they um, actually reread some of the stuff on self-monitoring, self-management, kind of getting at you have to learn how to do this and you have to be able to do it in a reasonable time frame and make sure you're monitoring your quality. Then the fifth course is on transitioning to practice and supervising others. And that's where they get the majority of the chapters, some of which they're rereading now from the perspective of I'm about to be the supervisor. So they may have read the problem solving chapter in course two when it was like, okay, you better do some problem solving. Let's talk about that. Now it's like, you know, a year later, you're going to need to teach someone else how to do problem solving. And so the last course is really, that's where they get the, you're going to be a supervisor. And now it's like flip the script. So hopefully that helped you as you were trying to figure out why you, maybe you're not as organized as you could be and how you're going to do that better. But now you have to teach that same thing. So I try to use this all of these courses, I've been trying to show you how to do it. Now take the book and go do it. Um, and so it's not quite as linear, right? They don't experience that the book start to finish until the end. They get pieces and parts and then many other resources. And um, I'm still building all the classes, so I don't yet have any feedback to give you, but I'll bring it back when I do. But so these are really three different approaches to using the book in a, in a particularly in a supervision course, in an OBM course, and then in an experiential and practicum course. And, um, you know, one of the other things that uh, Tyra and I have been doing is we do a lot of workshops um, and public speaking based on the book with people who have been out five or 10 years. And I think the experiences 
almost even more powerful for them because they're in a different place to be able to reflect and more things to reflect on. And, and one of the things that they're really experiencing is that notion that sometimes uh, you've got to reflect on the fact that you didn't do things as well as you might have hoped. And you can still learn something from that. And you've got to, um, you almost have to make a choice about whether you're going to beat yourself up for past mistakes and try to eliminate them from your history, or whether you're going to explore those suckers and make them a strong part of your history that actually improves you. Um, so, so that's my part of it. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I, I didn't know if I was going to say this or not, because I know the topic of this is about like how we, how we're using this as instructors and in our course, but I do that with what you were just saying, Linda really resonates with me because personally, when I work through this book, so I have taught it once, you know, last, last fall, and then I'm in the process of using it or we just finished it, but teaching the class now, um, the certain, like it resonated with me on just such a different level personally. And so this is, again, I've got over, you know, I've been, I got to do the math, but over I think close to 15 years of being a supervisor or maybe 10 years now, like, um, just kind of side, I had to actually do math this morning to figure out how old I was because I just had a birthday <laughs> and I literally had, I didn't know, uh, maybe tell, says about my math, how good that is, but, um, but it, but you know, all this experience and I'm still learning something through this. And, you know, we all know, you know, we're all aware of the concept of, you know, technological drift and, but just because we're aware of it, it doesn't make us immune to this reality either. And so exploring this text, you know, last year and then revisiting it again this year has really served to kind of reinforce some of my current practices, like I said, but also tighten up others and, and grow in other areas too. Um, like the whole section on impact of culture on supervisory relationships, something that I never had uh, uh, readings of or discussions of in grad school until really recently. And so you, you all really do a wonderful job tackling this and providing uh, really good points to, to really start conversation and discussion within a class. Um, and actually, um, uh, we I scheduled this to go over for a week of our class, but our conversation was so rich and so deep and thoughtful. Uh, we actually didn't get to half the questions and I wanted to make sure we provided enough time that we actually spent two weeks on this topic in class. Wow. And, um, you know, for, so for next year, when I go to revise my syllabus, knowing that I'm going to, you know, want to you know, expand the, the time that we spend on this, because it really resonated with the students and I know it really resonated with me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was kind of personally how this, uh, this uh, book has uh, impacted me. And quote of the episode. Oh, I was just going to say we learned a ton when we were writing it. So absolutely. And quote of the episode is just because you're aware of it doesn't make you immune to it. Absolutely right. Well, listen, I don't teach a course, but I do manage people and I manage people that manage and supervise and train other people. And I use content in that um, sort of framework and context, um, either directly or indirectly. And it's been really helpful and interesting because some of the folks that I'm using it with are not behavior analysts. And guess what, y'all? It still works. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's the, the universality of the principles, right? That doesn't mean we're all going to be great at applying them in all situations, but those suckers still work <laughs> across a, a broad range of circumstances. Well, thank you so much, um, both of you, for using the book, for um, providing feedback. We very much appreciate that. You know, we really we wrote this book because we felt like there was a need for something a little different that didn't exist. And we want to keep it timely and valuable for folks. But mostly thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to spend time with you both. And uh, I've been lucky enough to kind of work with and, and, or mentor each of you in different circumstances. And uh, I'm the lucky one. And um, so now you're giving back to me by being on this podcast and sharing your feedback. So I'm just, I'm super grateful.
Yeah, uh, this has been uh, a blast. I can't believe how quickly uh, this I went know, by. Right? But, uh, <laughs> I feel like we could keep we could keep at this for a few more hours. But um, you know, it was really uh, an honor to be invited, and always, I just really enjoyed uh, listening more than speaking. And uh, you know, during this experience, so uh, thank you all for the invitation, Adam. It's always a pleasure, um, and uh, really looking forward to uh, hopefully seeing a. Uh, uh, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh edition of this book. Um, can't wait to see where it goes. And um, I know I'll be uh, looking forward to it. And, you know, I, I'm not lying. I have it right next to me at all times. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like your academic whippy. <laughs> well, thanks to both of you. Thanks to everyone for joining us on this episode of The Lift. Adam? Yeah. But real quick, if I can say something, I always tell my students, you know, I do what I do now because of those who've invested their time and energy into me. And so I kind of channel that into my supervision and, and mentorship with them. And so it's very rarely that you get a chance to actually pay back. I'm typically paying it forward. So it's I, I'm grateful for this opportunity um, and uh, uh, really, you know, it's a pleasure to work with all you and have this conversation. I agree with Jason 100 percent. I could easily have spent another couple hours on this it's just such a great topic and you all provide such a wonderful resource for us to be to discuss and to talk about the ins and outs and um, um yeah looking forward to seeing revisions and seeing how it continues to grow well pass along those ideas for what needs to be added or revised we love to get that feedback and thank you both so much for your time today thanks everyone for joining us on the lift bye everyone